Okie dokie. Ready for your quiz? I was hoping that would have a, a more bracing effect than it seems to have. Okay. Um, the quiz will be Friday. And um, so you should have the play done by then. Uh, we'll be talking about it today, Friday, next Tuesday, and then their section a week from Friday. So it's, again, three days on King Lear, um, followed by section, and then uh, um, after that we go to the Scottish play, um, whose name we don't mention. Um, Okay, so I sent an email out. I said this the first day of class, and I sent an email out last night about which version of King Lear to read, um, which is the conflated text. So in the Norton, that starts on page 2493, if you have the second edition of the Norton. Um, most complete Shakespeare's <coughs> don't only have one version of King Lear, and um, if, if you only have one, that's the one to read. Um, any version, any single version of King Lear is conflated. Um, what's conflated are two different um, states of King Lear. Um, as you know, we talked about this a little bit and we'll talk about it even less today, but as you know, a lot of Shakespeare's plays exist in um, different versions. Um, the version usually published in his lifetime as a single play um, and then the version in the folio, which was the, his collected plays, um, published seven years after his death. Um, some plays only exist in the quarto version, that is the single volume version of a single play published in his lifetime. <coughs> some only exist in the folio, um, some exist in both. When they exist in both, there are inevitably differences between them. Um, those differences having to do with um, how well the, the play was typeset the first time, what censors demanded, and so forth. Um, we didn't talk about this in Richard II, but there are a lot of italicized moments in Richard II, um, especially about Richard abdicating, and that's because there was a law passed in England saying you couldn't show a king abdicating. Um, it looked too dangerous, and so the folio version doesn't have that in it. Um, but the quarto version of Richard II does. So there are differences between those versions. King Lear seems to be a play that Shakespeare revised. And so the quarto version, if you have the um, Norton, the left-hand pages in the facing page versions of King Lear um, was the version that appeared shortly after it was acted in 1604. Um, the folio version, or the right-hand pages, is the version that appeared after Shakespeare's death in the folio in 1623. Um, the differences between them are often fairly pronounced. Um, there are, the fool says some things in the folio version that he doesn't say in the quarto version, some things in the quarto version that he doesn't say in the folio version. Um, there are... Um, one thing that's useful by having the facing pages, if you go, for example, to page 2444, you will see that there's an entire um, page that appears in the quarto version, um, a page and a half that appears in the quarto version that Shakespeare simply takes out of the folio version. 
Um, so the question is always, what should you read? Um, the conflated text is not a version Shakespeare ever wrote. It's a combination of both versions. It's all the deleted scenes have been restored. Um, so it's like watching a DVD where the deleted scenes are not um, a separate special feature, but are just shoved into the original, even when some of the scenes have in a way been redone. That is some information you get twice um, if you delete a scene and then get that information in elsewhere. Um, so purists of a certain ilk, ilk is always an interesting word, purists of a certain ilk insist on reading either the quarto or the folio version and never, ever, ever sullying their minds with the conflated version. Um, your minds are now so sullied, which is a good thing, um, because the conflated version is probably more or less the closest thing that we can have to what was in Shakespeare's mind after he revised. That is, Shakespeare didn't revise in order to write a different play. He didn't revise in order to make King Lear different from what, from what it was. He revised King Lear in order to um, emphasize certain things that he thought weren't sufficiently emphasized in the first version, um, in order to make certain things work a little bit better. Um, and what he was doing really was revising a single play. So the question of what play is King Lear, in a sense, for me, the best answer is it's the play that Shakespeare worked on intermittently for a long time. And the play that he worked on, one version came out in 1604 and another <coughs> version came out after his death. Um, but what was on his mind was the play and the closest thing we have a record of, the record for that play, the closest thing to a record for that play is the conflated version, which has, um, shows us how Shakespeare is thinking about this stuff. Um, King Lear is Shakespeare's third longest play. That is the conflated version is Shakespeare's third longest play. Um, Hamlet is the longest, Richard III the second longest. Um, it's a very long play. And of course Shakespeare was under pressure to, um, to make it shorter. Um, all playwrights are. And um, if you want to know how long a Shakespeare play should be, you should look at an average length Shakespeare play. So part of what Shakespeare did in revision was he wanted to add stuff, so he had to cut stuff. Doesn't mean he wanted to cut, the, cut it. It means he had to cut it. Um, but we don't have to read the cut versions. Um, so the closest thing, I think the ideal way of reading King Lear is <coughs> to read first the quarto version, then the folio version, then the conflated version um, as a kind of aid to doing the interleaving of the quarto and the folio. Um, the closest thing we can do in a class like this, I, when I teach advanced Shakespeare, I sometimes um, do King Lear as the play in advanced Shakespeare. The closest thing we could do in a class like this is to read the folio version. So that's what um, you should read, what you should have. I mean, not, excuse me, I misspoke <laughs> myself. Not the folio version, the conflated version. Um, so that's what I hope you've read and what you should read for the quiz, yeah. Which book do you have? 
See, I, I think I said don't use the Oxford at one point. Well, because I bought it last summer. I know, but it's, the Oxford is a notoriously notorious edition. <laughs> um, the guy who edited it, Gary Taylor, who used to teach here, um, and boy, could I tell you, well. Uh, <laughs> um, his principle of editing was to make Shakespeare as um, different as humanly possible from anything anyone thought Shakespeare had ever written. Um, and, uh, and he succeeded. Um, so, what, so here's what I would suggest to you, is um, get it online. Um, the, um, a good online Shakespeare source is um, at MIT. Um, I forget what the website is, but if you Google Shakespeare and King Lear and MIT, um, they have the plays online and their versions are um, just fine. Um, and so you'll have notes in the Oxford, um, but, and you can, you can go to those notes. Um, I'll give you an example of something that Taylor does because it's, it's micro, it's, it's, it's um, as the great philosopher J.L. Austin puts it, there's a great deal of fun in flushing the coverts of the microglot which is to say getting obsessed with something really, really tiny because it's so neat if you put the right microscope on it. So um, in the quarto version, um, Regan and um, Cornwall um, explain why they've, why they've arrived at Gloucester's castle. Um, and um, what Regan says is, um, Cornwall begins saying, you know not why we've come to you. Um, and Regan um, continues, um, this out of season um, threading dark-eyed night. And that's a line that makes no sense. In the folio, it's corrected. Um, it's a standard error for printers to make. To confuse you, to confuse yous, to confuse yous and eyes. Um, also, ends and yous get get confused. I often gets confused because if you're writing in cursive, um, the difference between an I and a U, as you know, it's sort of an allegory about human relations. The difference between I and you um, is one is dotty. <laughs> okay, I can't go on, um, but you can. Um, the difference between an I and a U, basically, if you're writing in cursive, is do you go up twice or do you go up once? But because cursive letters are always formed and connected by upstrokes, um, I's and U's are very, very easy to mistake. If you try to read your doctor's handwriting, um, actually, you guys all get your scripts done through computer. But back in the day, um, if you try to read bad handwriting, the kinds of guesses you make is, is that an I or is it a U? Um, in setting type, which you're doing in mirror image, um, if you're a typesetter, um, you, may, you will often confuse B's and D's and also confuse um, whether, whether the same letter is used for a U and, and for an N. It's just whether it's upside down or right side up. Um, and so those are the kinds of typical errors that you will find in, in printed Shakespeare texts. I's um, mistaken for U's, U's for I's. Ends for U's, U's for ends. There's an important one in Antony and Cleopatra where um, uh, a printer, in my opinion, 
um, a later editor of Shakespeare, and most later editor of Shakespeare's, misread the word Antony as the word autumn. That is, the N in Antony gets flipped. So instead of A-N-T, it's A-U-T. Um, and um, along with Elizabethan spelling or Jacobean spelling, that's a possible error. So at any rate, the, to continue flushing the covert of this microglot, um, the, it's a good status for, for Gmail buzz. Here I am, flushing the coverts of the microglot. Um, the, um, um, this out of, excuse me, so you know not why we, we come to you. Thus, this out of season threading dark-eyed night is the quarto version. In the folio, um, Shakespeare corrects it in the most obvious way, which is thus out of season threading dark-eyed night. So why did we come to you in the middle of the night? And it's a beautiful line if you focus on it. They're threading night like a needle. And it just shows how grim and scary and, and, and outside the world of the outside is in King Lear. Lear is set very, very early in pre-Christian times. Lear was a king in essentially prehistorical times for England. So this is not a world which is a familiar world to the English. This is a very strange, what sort of what Daniel Boone was facing in early America. This is what the what the um, strange, threatening, terrifying world um, outside the castles are in England. So when Lear is sent out into the storm, he's sent out into a place of complete and utter, str utter strangeness. And that's already captured a little bit in the idea of threading dark-eyed night. And then Shakespeare is doing something that Shakespeare does, which is dark-eyed night sounds like you're talking about the goddess of the night. Um, the dark-eyed night sounds like the goddess of night. But then you realize, no, it's like the eye of a needle, not like the eye of a goddess, but the eye of a needle, like in that Margaret Atwood cup, couplet that some of you will know. You, f you fit into me um, like a hook into an eye, a fish hook into a human eye. Um, so that's sort of what Shakespeare, or she may in a way even be getting that from Shakespeare, because suddenly you're thinking of eyes and needles together. Um, and it's the eye of the needle, but somehow the thread goes through that eye out of season. And there's something just a little bit anxiety-provoking, subliminally, about the eye that turns out to be an empty hole and a sharp needle is associated with that empty hole. It's fine when you talk about the eye of a needle. No one says, oh, that's such a scary image. But it becomes a scary image when you think of it first being an eye that sees, dark-eyed night, and then realize, no, it's a needle. It's almost as though the needle goes into the eye subliminally in the line. So it's a typical bit of Shakespearean, um, a daub of Shakespearean color. Um, something you would never notice on its own, probably, um, but that sets up what's going to happen later. Those of you who finished <coughs> Act 3 know just what I'm talking about. Um, those of you who haven't, don't. Um, but it sets up a scene that's going to happen later. 
Um, and it sets up all the images of blindness and of seeing and of not seeing when Lear says to um, Kent, out of my sight, and Kent's response is, see better Lear and let me always remain the true blank of thine eye. Um, and the question, how blind is Lear? Um, all of that is also just a little bit in the kind of, of daubs of color that Shakespeare does in his imagery and in, in his integration of the ideas of his play. All of that's a little bit in this throwaway line, but still quite a beautiful line, almost a haiku, um, which he changed from this out-of-season threading dark-eyed night, which makes no sense at all, to thus out-of-season threading dark-eyed night. So my esteemed colleague, Gary Taylor, um, when he was editing Shakespeare, um, said, um, it was really important for me not to be prejudiced by the folio, so what I did was I edited the quarto as though the folio didn't exist. Um, and I just used normal editorial principles um, and didn't ever look to the folio for any kind of evidence for how to edit the quarto. So he comes upon the quarto line, um, this out-of-season threading dark-eyed night, and he says, that makes no sense. Clearly, the word was threatening. So that the quarto reading as Taylor edits it is this out-of-season threatening dark-eyed night. So it's a really bad night, it's out of season, it's threatening, thunderstorms are coming, and night also has dark eyes. Um, and so he edits the quarto. Um, instead of doing the obvious change, which is this to thus, that is the change Shakespeare himself made when he edited the play, um, what Taylor does is he keeps the this, which is clearly wrong, and changes threading to threatening, um, which there's no reason that threading, which by the way was originally spelled T-H-R-E-D-I-N-G, that is there was no A in Shakespeare's spelling of it, um, he decides to change that to threatening to make the line make sense. And now, on the one hand, he's saying something right, which is that editors tend not to be as good poets as Shakespeare, although the desire to be a textual editor actually does come as a kind of a relic of the desire to be a poet. That is, think what it means to edit Shakespeare. Well, what you want to do is just help a little bit with writing Shakespeare's lines. It's also what acting Shakespeare is. You want to help a little bit with the poetry of those lines. Um, so clearly, however, you can't expect an editor to see that um, the word is obviously threading um, because that's an image um, that only Shakespeare could come up with, the, thus out of season threading dark-eyed night. But what Taylor does is he takes the best possible evidence in the world for checking what the obvious misprints in the quarto should be changed to, namely, the folio, which does change, does correct those misprints. And he, while claiming that he's ignoring the folio, he's doing the opposite. He's explicitly editing against the folio. So I think any decent editor, if only the quarto existed, would have seen that this out-of-season threading dark-eyed night, that it's a very easy change to go from this to thus, 
And any decent editor would have made that change. But Taylor decides, no, if he makes that change, it's too close to the folio, and that's what he doesn't want it to be. So he looks at the folio, and he changes away from the folio. Um, and he does that persistently and consistently in the Oxford edition. And if you actually read, we'll stop flushing this covert in a moment, um, but if you, um, if you read the textual notes on that very line, um, he actually um, claims wrongly, mistakenly, he labors under a mistake, um, as uh, Lord Byron might put it, um, that the way it appeared in the quarto was, was with an A, T-H-R-E-A-D-D-I-N-G, and therefore that um, it could well have been threatening. But it didn't appear that way in the, in the quarto. Um, he's mistaken about that. There was no A in it. Um, we call that the, well, no, I won't say it. Um, so um, the reason, therefore, not to read the Oxford is the Oxford is full of um, completely perverse textual choices, which are designed um, to, um, uh, to further and promote um, Taylor's rather self-pleasing view that Shakespeare wasn't, wasn't actually that great, but that the editors um, took something that was pretty good and they kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it and making it better and better and better through their tweaks. And now here's Taylor, the final tweakster, um, tweaking it to make it um, really great. So what you really have is the works of William Shakespeare and Stanley Wells and Gary Taylor um, in, in your version. Um, the Norton edition uses the Oxford edition, but Greenblatt and his co-editors um, just refuse to use the, um, the most ridiculous um, uh, choices that Taylor made, the most ridiculous editing choices that Taylor made. Okay, I swore I wouldn't talk about editing in this class, and so I didn't. I deny it. Um, it didn't happen. Um, we'll see. Um, <laughs> But um, anyhow, I do, I, do, I do hope this is interesting once in a long time, um, a kind of, kind of microscopic examination like that. Um, all right, so, but this has gotten us into talking about Shakespeare. Um, and also later, later versions of Shakespearean revision. So here's um, an interesting fact to begin with. Um, <coughs> Shakespeare, um, the theaters, we talked about this a little bit. Um, the theaters in England closed in 1641 um, when the Puritan Revolution started. And there was no theater in England, no public theater in England for almost 20 years until the Restoration. Um, so what happened was a tradition of English theater came to an end. Um, at the Restoration, um, theaters were reopened when Charles II became King of England. Um, but there were really no plays to put on because people hadn't been writing plays in England um, <coughs> and there were no actors to play them and so on. Um, and, um, and tastes had changed. Charles's court had spent um, the last 11 years in France and they'd learned um, to enjoy French style plays um, which, are, which tend to have happy endings and which turn, tend to be much more classical in form than Shakespeare's plays, but now suddenly there was a huge demand for content 
Um, and it was a good time to be a playwright because there were all these theaters but nothing to show in England. So a lot of playwrights in the 1660s got the idea of looking at old plays and improving them. Um, <clears throat> and among the primitive playwrights of a previous age whom they looked at <coughs> was, of course, Shakespeare. So very famously or notoriously, um, a writer named Nahum Tate um, decided that he would um, make King Lear palatable to the more sophisticated tastes of the 1660s. Um, and so he, so he takes King Lear and he rewrites it and he writes a preface where he said, well, you know, I found this amazing diamond in the rough. Um, King Lear is clearly a diamond. Shakespeare is clearly a genius, no question about that. But he was a primitive genius and he didn't really know what he was doing and what that diamond needed was cutting and polishing. And I, Nahum Tate, have cut and polished. I remind you of a great line in James Merrill um, in a poem of his where um, a celebratory moment where they're singing um, some religious songs on Christmas. Um, Merrill writes, the text we sang was hack work, Nahum Tate. Um, so just that's what you should know about Nahum Tate, hack work. And um, the hack work here was a hack work version of King Lear. Um, so Tate does a lot of things to King Lear. Um, one thing is he makes it end happily. Um, how this play could end happily, um, you may wonder as you begin reading it. Um, Tate finds a way. Um, that requires a lot of messing around with the play. Now one thing, however, it doesn't require is a lot of messing around with history because Shakespeare did that. So one of the things that made Tate's version of King Lear wildly popular, and wildly popular really for about 140 years, was that he gives it a happy ending which is actually much more in line with the history that Shakespeare was following in writing King Lear than with what Shakespeare did to that history. Um, so the reason I bring this up is that Tate is actually, like Gary Taylor, Tate focuses your attention on something you might not otherwise have paid attention to. I never would have paid attention to that line if I hadn't seen Taylor mess with it. Um, if you look at how Tate messes with King Lear, um, Tate is unerringly good at showing what really powerful moments in King Lear, where they are, because he unerringly, when he changes something, he changes something good. He takes something good and makes it bad. And often you wouldn't even realize that it was good, except that Tate had such a good instinct for turning it bad um, that you then look at it and you say, wow, I never would have noticed that. Um, so Tate is really an interesting way of um, looking at King Lear. And the first thing, as I say, is he makes us realize that what was a happy ending in the historical story of Lear and his three daughters um, turns into Shakespeare makes a tragic ending. Um, and people were very upset by that when they found it out. Um, the greatest of all English 
literary critics, Dr. Samuel Johnson, who is an 18th century editor of Shakespeare's, writes in his notes on King Lear that um, he adds his voice to those who prefer Tate's version, that what happens in Lear, that Shakespeare has suffered something to happen, not only against um, all notions of poetic justice, but even against the faith of chronicles, that he finds it unendurable, and that he does not know that he has ever reread Shakespeare's play from the first time that he read it as a very young man to the time when he had to edit it for his complete edition of Shakespeare's works. Um, <coughs> that he found it so unbearable that he couldn't reread it. So again, that's not meant by Johnson as extremely high praise of King Lear. Johnson thinks Shakespeare made a lot of mistakes, and he thinks the sad ending of King Lear is such a mistake. But look at the mistake that he's identifying here. He's saying this play is unbearably sad. And so the question, is that a mistake in a tragedy to make it unbearably sad? Well, in a way, it might be. There's an argument for it. Um, but for us, what we can say is it's also a really good way of flagging the fact that King Lear, if you read it with enough care and interest and passion, you will find this unbearably sad. It's a way of flagging something about this play, that surprise. Now, what Tate will help us look at um, are very, in the changes that he makes are various really deep things that Shakespeare does um, that we might not otherwise have noticed. So let me just give you <coughs> two examples. I'll, I'll tell you what Tate's ending is when we get to the ending, um, but it would be a spoiler for you to know that it doesn't happen. Well, it kind of can't happen in Shakespeare's version. At the end of Tate's play, Cordelia and Edgar get married and become king and queen of England. And um, Lear and Gloucester go off to be hermits together and talk about philosophy. Um, and, and it all works out. Um, it's really terrific. And all the bad guys are dead. Um, so I hope it's not a spoiler for you to find out that this play does not end that way. Um, it very much doesn't. But it can't because Cordelia's married to France. So you know that would be sad if she ended up married to Edgar too. Um, she doesn't. Um, Tate also gets rid of the character of the fool. And um, if you think about it, you can see what that means about the character of the fool. That the fool somehow, if the fool is in this play, it cannot have a happy ending. And thinking about how that's true and why that's true. As soon as you say it, it seems obvious that if the fool is in this play, how could it have a happy ending? What would the fool do? Say, well, I was really worried about you, Nuncle, but now I see that you really are wise. Um, doesn't work. Um, so Tate is smart enough to get rid of the fool because he knows the fool can't work 
in this play. And what that should do is focus our attention very strongly on the character of the fool. Um, I suffer a parenthetical remark, which is that um, Coolidge Corner is now showing Ron, um, which is it's the 25th anniversary of um, its first appearance. So Ron is Kurosawa's version of King Lear, and um, probably his last um, absolutely great movie. He made three movies after it, but Ron is his last um, great, <coughs> great movie. Um, and he was in his late 70s, I guess, when he made it, so he was almost Lear's age. Um, and Kurosawa made several movies based on Shakespeare. Um, as I say, Ron is the last one. Um, it's really worth seeing. Um, Kurosawa makes some changes, but it's essentially King Lear. And um, the character of the fool in that movie um, is played by a guy whose name is just Peter. Um, or um, Peitaru is, um, or Pitura, I think, is, his, is the Japanese pronunciation. Um, <coughs> that's his stage name. And um, it's his stage name because his name is based on Peter Pan. So he's actually a Japanese um, performer who calls himself Peter because he wants you to think of Peter Pan. Um, and what he was at the time of making the movie, he still acts and performs, but what he was at the time that that movie was made, he was 25 years old, um, was he was the number one female impersonator in Tokyo. He was the highest end, high end female impersonator. That's what his performances were. And so um, Kurosawa gets this fairly famous person to play the fool. And what's gr what he's great in the movie. Um, and part of what's great about him is that um, really um, um, indeterminate space that he fills or the indeterminate character um, that he represents. You don't think of him in a certain kind of dramatic term. So what we could say is the most basic identifications that we make when we go to a play and a scene begins, the most basic identifications we make are first, the genders of the characters that we're seeing on stage, um, and then the ages of the characters. So what we look at is man or woman, and then we, the second thing we might look at is parent or child. Those are the most basic um, first things that we see when we see a character come on stage. And to the extent that a character can defeat that immediate identification, and by identification here, I don't mean um, the BS notion that we identify with a character on stage. I just mean identification in the kind of FBI version. That is, when you identify someone in a lineup, and you say, yes, that's the person who stole my iPod. Um, the most basic thing we identify in a character is their gender, and then if you have two characters together, the most basic aspect of their relationship that we identify is friends, enemies, possible lovers, possible parent and child, um, ruler and ruled, authority and subordinate. Those are the first things that we're identifying. When you have a character like Peter in the movie, when you have um, a character like um, uh, um, 
trying to think of other versions of this. Well, um, Linda Hunt playing Billy Kwan in The Year of Living Dangerously, um, when you have trouser rolls in opera. Um, a certain basic identification is defeated. Um, and the defeat of that makes that character seem uncanny. Um, and that's what Kurosawa got right. I mean, that's one of a million things that Kurosawa gets right in Ran, is making the fool um, into an extremely uncanny character. Um, do we know where that's coming from? I wonder if it's coming from here, which is most embarrassing. No. Does no one else hear it? Yeah, but we don't know where it's coming from. Um, okay, do, we, do you guys hear it in the back? Do you think it's coming from outside? Okay, it's... it's um, um, you would recognize your own music, right? Maybe not so much, maybe it's Pandora. <laughs> Okay, I meant Pandora, the, the, the iPhone application, not Pandora, the, the um, world of <laughs> Avatar. Okay. Um, all right. Um, the Fool is similarly indeterminate. Um, the Fool is um, a figure who is eerie and uncanny, and that's one reason <clears throat> that it's very hard um, to imagine a play with this kind of eeriness within it um, as a play which is going to um, simply resolve into a happy ending. Um, again, what makes such a character eerie and uncanny is that basic identification that we do. Look, there's a boy and there's a girl. Their motives are likely to be a desire for X. Um, or there's a parent, there's a child. They are likely to have these motives. The most basic identification that we do enables us to ascribe motives to characters. Um, the ascription of motives is essential to drama. But if you can't place a character, if a character has that eerie resistance to being identified, the character will also be very hard to describe in terms of motivation. And, not, and when you have a character who can't be described in terms of motivation, the worst thing you could do in reading King Lear and in writing about King Lear is to try to say what the fool's motives are. Um, that is to miss the point of the fool. Um, what critics tend to do is to say, oh, the fool loves Lear and sticks, through it, sticks with him through thick and thin because the fool really cares. But if the fool is someone who cares, he's just a much less interesting character. Um, then he becomes you know, a sort of loyal pet character. Um, and that's not what he is. Um, some people think that the fool actually hates Lear um, and does what he does out of hatred. But that seems to be the kind of mistake that Lear makes um, when he's most making mistakes. In a deep sense, this play is about mistaking motives. From the start, it's about mistaking motives. And when you have a character who kind of stands for the resistance to all motivation, who is eerie, 
because he resists motivation and who is a kind of index of what's good about Lear because Lear does not, on the whole, require an account of the fool's motivations. That's what's good about him. Um, then you can see what the alternative to motivation is. Um, now, one way of talking about that is also to talk about the other serious mistake in motivations that characters in this play make, which is not their mistaken idea of what's driving each other, which is essential to all drama. All drama occurs when characters misunderstand each other's motivations. Um, that's what makes drama drama. But in this play, it's also the motivation of the gods that characters try to figure out. Why are the gods doing this to me? Um, why have they um, treated me this way? Um, and the thing to do in this play is to think as you read it, as you reread it, as you experience it, is to think of the fool and the gods as being in somewhat similar, um, having somewhat similar auras to them, feels about them. Um, the fool and the gods are opaque to us, not because they're hiding what their true feelings and motivations are, but because we don't understand what it would be like to be such figures. These are figures who are not characterizable in human terms and not characterizable through human motivations. But they nevertheless preside over the tone and feeling and atmosphere of the play. And what the play in a way is about is characters coming to recognize the world of the fool and the world of the gods rather than staying in their little world of man to quote the description of King Lear in the storm where he strives in his little world of man to outscorn the to and fro conflicting wind and rain. Um, how can he possibly do that? Um, there's another world and one that you cannot translate, cannot map into terms of human motivations. Yeah. Yes, I think what we, what, that's a really good observation, that Edgar choosing poor Tom as his identity is a part of that. And so I, I want to say something about that also. Um, I mean, right now is a good time to say something about that. <coughs> King, King Lear is a play with a double plot. Um, and the two plots are the King Lear and his daughter's story and the Gloucester and his son's story. And um, one of those plots, Shakespeare got... Um, completely separate. That is, the Glosser and his son story um, comes from a completely different source from the King Lear and his daughter's story. Um, and what Shakespeare does is he takes these two parallel stories and he puts them together. Um, now, the reason he puts them together, the simplest way of describing that reason, is to say that here what you're getting is not 
two parallel stories, but two stories which are almost parallel, um, where what you get is what's technically called parallax. Um, that is, the two stories are never exactly parallel to each other or any two um, um, movements along one storyline is not going to be exactly parallel to a movement along another storyline, but they're close enough that the differences matter. Um, so the reason um, it's good to call it parallax is you can think of it as being the way stereoscopic vision works. That is, um, when you see things through your two eyes, um, your eyes are not are not looking in parallel to each other, but they are, when you focus on something, your eyes are pointing down a line of vision which intersects at the object. And because what you see in your two eyes, um, each eye is seeing slightly different from the other, when you fuse those images, you get depth. Um, that's how 3D works. I only bring this up because we were talking about Avatar. Um, but it's also how it works in Shakespeare. You have two stories that are slightly but significantly different from each other. And each story then becomes a kind of comment and a kind of, provides a kind of depth to the other story. So think of the parallels, which are obvious. Lear has children, one of whom is loyal and other are not. Lear has loyal children and disloyal children. Gloucester has loyal children and disloyal children. Lear mistakes and reverses the loyal for the disloyal. Gloucester mistakes and reverses the loyal for the disloyal. Um, Lear's loyal child is banished and has to run away on pain of death. Gloucester's loyal child has to run away lest he be killed. Um, Lear is blind to the truth. Gloucester is blind to the truth. Lear finds out the truth at the end. Gloucester finds out the truth at the end. Lear goes out into the storm. Gloucester follows him out into the storm. Um, those are the most obvious parallels, but further parallels are um, Lear is helped by Kent. Gloucester is helped by Edgar. Lear is um, put into very strange situations by the fool. Gloucester is put into strange situations by Edgar, who even says of himself, bad is, says of himself leading his blind father around, bad is the trade that must play fool to sorrow. So he describes what he's doing with his father as playing fool to sorrow. So he explicitly calls himself the fool with respect to what he's doing to and for his father. So those parallels are everywhere. The differences, though, aren't merely variety. The differences are as significant as the parallels. So one difference, three daughters, two sons. Those are actually two differences, right? Daughters and sons, and three versus two. Another difference, youngest daughter is the good one. Younger son is the bad one. Another difference, Lear's daughters are all legitimate. Whereas, and all have the same mother, as Lear stresses at one point in the play. Um, 
Lear is wondering whether it can possibly be true. Um, but we know that it is true. That's the whole point. Whereas um, Edmund is n does not have the same mother as Edgar. They're half-siblings, not whole siblings. So that's another difference between them. Um, there are many differences of this sort. Um, differences partly, as you'll see later, that have to do with figurative versus literal. The connections are connections that people make. Edgar sees Lear and he says, he childed as I fathered. That is, his children are treating him the way my father is treating me. So there we get a parallel which is also a flip. That is, Edgar sees a parallel in his story with Lear's story, but he sees the parallel as one in which he and Lear are the parallel characters, not he and Cordelia. Um, and that's significant. Lear will make a similar flip when he says of Edgar, to Edgar, didst thou give all to thy daughters and art thou come to this? How did you get to be this way? The only way this could have happened is if you gave everything to your daughters. So Lear also sees the parallel between himself and Edgar, not the parallel between himself and Gloucester. Um, so all of those um, connections and parallels or failures of paralleling um, are things to be aware of. It could be, again, to talk in very simple terms, this will get way complex later, but even in simple terms, when Lear calls Goneril a degenerate bastard, he means that figuratively. That is, you are treating me as though you are not actually my daughter. Degenerate bastard. Um, you are treating me as though you are Edmund, is what he's saying. And what we realize is, well, Edmund does have some cause to be angry at his father. His father had planned to give him nothing, whereas Lear's daughters don't have a similar motive for their hatred of Lear. There's a way in which Edmund, by contrast, brings out Goneril and Regan's behavior. But there's another way that Edmund, by parallel, actually makes Goneril and Regan seem like deeper characters than you might think they were if you didn't also have Edmund there with them. Because Edmund is a deeper character from the start than we might think Goneril and Regan are. So these are all things to keep in mind that the, that the connection, the, the, the tandem quality of these two stories um, complicates each of them. Um, a last thing to say is that you won't go very far wrong if rather than seeing the Gloucester, Edgar, Edmund story, it's frequently called a subplot, you won't go far along if you call it, no, an, a main plot just as important as the Lear, Cordelia, Regan, and Goneril plot. And indeed, you won't go far wrong if you see this play as ultimately more about Edgar and Gloucester and Edmund than it is about Lear and his daughters. 
Um, one thing that Kurosawa does, sort of like Tate, um, although infinitely better, is he actually gets rid of the Edmund Edgar Gloucester plot. Um, not quite. What he does is he manages to, um, to telescope both plots into one. So in Ron, the Lear character actually has three sons rather than three daughters. Um, and he, does, he gets a whole lot of the Edgar Edmund story into the Lear story. It's not that hard to do. Um, but what that also enables him to do is bring out some of the stuff that Shakespeare is bringing out through that other plot. Um, so those are all things to be thinking about as you read it. What, what we should do is start at the beginning um, and think about motivations in the characters who do have motivations. That is, everyone except the fool and the gods. Um, but think about motivation in the other characters. Ultimately, we, the, the character who's going to be hardest of all to motivate, hardest of all to figure out, but still within the world of the motivatable is Edgar. Edgar is a very strange character indeed. So your sense that his picking poor Mad Tom is moving him towards the pole that the fool represents is right. Um, but Edgar is still a character that we do have to figure out. Um, Edgar doesn't appear, however, um, in this opening scene. And Edgar won't appear with Lear until we get to the hovel. So um, we begin, as we've seen Hamlet begins, as we'll see Antony and Cleopatra begins, with a conversation, a kind of behind-the-scenes conversation, that in Richard II would have been seen too. That is, Richard II begins in a much more standard way with a great and important public occasion. Um, that is, Richard saying, I want to hear what's going on um, between, uh, our leisure would not before let us hear the conflict between Mowbray and Bolingbroke, but now we will hear it. And then we get to scene two, and Gloucester and, I mean, the Duchess of Gloucester and John of Gaunt are talking about um, what's really going on. In Hamlet, we have people walking on the battlements talking about, so what's going on with the king? What's going on with this ghost? What's happening here in Denmark? And then in scene two, we have the king speaking with very great firmness and authority. Um, in King Lear, we have a conversation about the king, and then we have the king coming in. And the first thing to notice is how much Lear has already planned what's going to happen or what he wants to happen, which is the contest among his daughters, um, but also how much is known about Lear's future plans for England. So the very first line, enter, Kent, Gloucester, and Edmund. If you direct this play, you have to decide where is Edmund entering. Um, is he with them? Well, probably not. Why? Because Kent asked for an introduction. So they can't be a trio that's that are walking in together, um, it has to be the case that Edmund is either already on stage when they come in or they come in through different doors um, or Edmund comes in a little bit after. You had them all enter together. Or Edmund comes in. You, you were comforting. You had what? I had, I, sorry, I directed Lear. I know. Last year and I had Edmund come on first. Okay, good. 
Oh, so, so that, that was a praise. Good. Yeah. Or you can have Edmund come on last um, and wait to be noticed. Um, but you can't have them come in together. So you have a conversation. We, they come in in mid-conversation. Kent saying, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. Um, quick paraphrase is, I thought the king liked Albany more than Cornwall. Um, this is weird. I always thought he liked Albany better. Now, notice that that was good judgment. That if the king did always like Albany better, he was right. Albany is the good son-in-law, the good husband of Goneril. Whereas Cornwall is the evil one. Cornwall is one of the most evil people in the play. Um, Albany is actually, turns out to be one of the best people in the play. Not the best, but one of the best. He's a little bit weak, but not that weak. And when, it, when the time comes to be strong, he is strong. So the first thing we hear, the tiniest daub or dab of Shakespearean color is, Lear used to like Albany better, always liked Albany better, but now he's not behaving that way. Um, Gloucester agrees, it did always seem so to us, but now in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes he values most, for equalities are so weighed that curiosity in neither can make choice of either's moiety. Again, put into um, um, more modern language. Yeah, he always did like Albany better, but he divided the kingdom so scrupulously that you can't tell which one he likes better. Because neither of them would say, oh, I want the other guys. Neither of them, no matter how carefully they looked, at what the other person was getting. Neither of them would say, no fair, I want his part of the kingdom. Now, what that tells you, besides the fact that Lear is doing the same kind of thing that Gaunt did, which is to bend over backwards, not to show preference between Regan and Goneril, between Albany and Cornwall, um, what it's also showing is the division of the kingdom is already known. He's not about to divide it for the first time on the basis of the results of the contest. He's already divided it. He's taken counsel. He's talked to Gloucester and to Kent about what his plans are. And they know what the division of the kingdom is. Um, so the contest that's about to occur is a contest entirely for show. Um, it's official and public. It's not... Um, Lear kind of crazily thinking, oh, we'll have a contest and then I'll divide the kingdom. Um, it's all, the fix is already in, and that's a good thing because the fix that's already in is a very careful and fair one, at least as regards Cornwall and Albany. Then Kent notices Edmund and says, is not this your son, my lord? Now notice what he's doing here if you play this right is something like this. Um, oh, here's your son. You may not realize that we've never been officially introduced, so I'm going to hint to you that we've never officially been introduced because it's kind of embarrassing for him and me, but it's obviously an oversight on your part. Again, this is a kind of standard social situation. You've all been in this situation. Um, where you see someone with their roommate and you know the person but not the roommate, but you know it is their roommate, but blah, blah, blah. Um, or their new erotic coefficient, etc. Um, so it's a very standard bit of very tiny social awkwardness. 
Um, it's not awkward, it's just a little bit awkward. Um, just very, very tiny version of that. And the proper answer here is for Gloucester to say, indeed he is. Um, Edmund, my noble Duke of Kent, Kent, my son Edmund. But no. Instead, what Gloucester says is, his breeding sir hath been at my charge. Um, that is, well, um, I bred him. Um, I was charged with it. It's one thing the line means, and it also means, and I paid for his education away from here. Um, and so everyone knows that it wasn't my assistant Andrew Young, who's his father. Um, my allusion here is to John Edwards. Um, it wasn't my assistant, but I paid for it. I did everything, and finally, yeah, I admit it. So yeah, his breeding story has been in my charge. I've so often <coughs> blushed to acknowledge him that now I embraced to it. So I've had to admit so often that he was my son um, that now I can just do it brazenly. Now, imagine yourself Edmund. So an important and polite and as it turns out, thoughtful person is waiting to be introduced to you. And we know he's polite because he doesn't say, it's not this your bastard son. But he, he gives Edmund the complete acknowledgement and complete status of Gloucester's son. Of course, Edmund knows, of course Kent knows who Edmund is, but he wants the introduction and he wants it done politely. So he says, it's not this your son. Now imagine that you're Edmund and that what your dad says is, yeah, I didn't want to admit it for a long time. I blushed every time anyone thought he was my son. Um, I, but, you know, they charged me with being his father, and I kind of admitted the charge by paying for his education, that now I will brazenly say, yeah, he's my son. So think of your father saying that about you. Um, not that pleasant. Kent gets that. So Kent's immediate response is to um, play dumb but in a way that has an edge to it, which is, I cannot conceive you. That is, this is not really so smart what you're saying right now, and it's embarrassing to me, and I, I'm sure I have no idea what you mean. Um, and that's, again, Kent is trying to save a social situation that's going down the tubes. Um, he fails, since Gloucester's next line you really don't want to think of your father saying, right? Do you? Sir, here, take a second to think of your own parent. And then think of what's being vividly described about you here, 18 years earlier. Sir, this young fellow's mother could, Whereupon she grew round wombed and had indeed, sir, a son for her cradle, ere she had a husband for her bed. Do you smell a fault? Um, which is about as horrible a line as you can imagine. The footnote here is right. Um, Greenblatt did the footnotes for, um, for this King Lear, and his footnotes are really good. He also did the Hamlet footnotes, and I think they're very good too. Um, so do you smell a fault? Where what a fault means is a sin, but also a crack. Um, so do you smell what I'm saying? Um, and uh, this is like a Monty Python routine. Um, that is, it's, is your wife a goer? 
hey, know what I mean? Do you know that routine? Um, say no more, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. All right, find it on YouTube. <laughs> really, you, you can't live in this world without knowing that routine. Um, not, not in the 21st century. Um, is your wife a goer? Just Google that. Um, so, not now. <laughs> I can't believe this. All right. Um, so, um, Kent is really in desperately bad shape, and, and so is Edmund. But Edmund, of course, is going to bear this with dignity because he's been embarrassed by his father so often. He's got the classic embarrassing father to deal with. The only more embarrassing father in this play, of course, is Lear. These guys make Polonius look like James Bond. <laughs> this is awful, but Edmund is no doubt showing great dignity. And Kent again tries to save it. I cannot wish the fault undone, the issue of it being so proper. Um, and what he's trying to do is say, look, I get your joke, but I'm still going to try to turn this into formal language. And then Gloucester says, but I do have a son, <laughs> a legal son, but I have a son, I have, sir, a son by order of law, some year elder than this. And then we get that he actually feels a great deal of affection for Edmund, who yet is no dearer in my account. So what he's saying is, I love this ruffian just as much as I love my older son. Come on, you. Um, so what we have here is a classic disconnect between parent and child, which is the parent is acting immaturely because he thinks it's charming and shows how wonderful and young he is. If you know about Falstaff, um, Gloucester is almost Falstaffian in this. Look at me, you know. Um, I'm on Facebook with you. Um, hey, will you friend me on Facebook? Ha uh ha. -huh. Um, so that's essentially what he's doing. Um, and um, it's almost as though he's typing Z-O-M-G. Um, very embarrassing. And so, of course, what Edmund has to be doing is to be the mature one. So this is a classic situation of the kind of boisterous, rowdy, um, happily, cheerfully immature father, um, embarrassing the very serious son who is trying to compensate for his father's embarrassingness by um, being more serious um, still. And then what you get is Gloucester saying, but I love this guy. I love this guy. Um, that's essentially what he's saying. And he thinks that Edmund is getting that and is appreciating it. And we see, because Kent sees, we know this because Kent knows this, we see that um, this is very embarrassing to Edmund and that Gloucester is misconceiving, as it were, how <coughs> he can make Edmund feel loved and feel good. Now we know from the beginning of the next scene that Edmund does feel Gloucester's love. And not only does he feel it, but he values it. But nevertheless, he feels that he's not loved enough. So part of, you know, to the extent that I spent some time in Hamlet trying to save Claudius's character, um, I'm going to spend some time in King Lear trying to save the characters of Edmund and Regan and Goneril. Not as much time, but some time. Edmund especially. Um, so here's the situation. And there's a reason um, that you'll see in a minute that I'm pushing it um, as, as 
in as much detail as I am. Um, he then explains, so this knave came something saucily into the world before he was sent for, yet was his mother fair. There was good sport at his making. Okay, can you imagine? Good sport at his making. No, you're just, you're just pushing this away, I know. I'm just torturing you, but I'm not thinking about my own parents now. There was good sport at his making, and his whore son must be acknowledged. Finally, the introduction. Do you know this noble gentleman, Edmund? No, my lord. My lord of Kent, remember him hereafter as my honorable friend. My services to your lordship. And Kent says, I must love you and sue to know you better. Very formal um, responses from Edmund, much more formal um, than Kent. But Kent is, Kent is speaking properly, and Edmund is speaking very deferentially. Um, exact opposite of tone. Um, he's, he's speaking with a kind of arrogant deference, you could say, the exact opposite of his father's tone. I must love you and sue to know you better, sir, I shall study deserving. And then Gloucester, who can't shut up, says, he has been out nine years and away he shall again. So he's been away for nine years, I'm about to send him back. And then we hear the Senate and the king is coming. Okay, so we've had this opening scene. Now everyone enters and we have a much more formal scene, or at least a scene that Lear intends to be formal when <coughs> he begins. And now we have two or three things that are the jeopardy, that are set up as the jeopardy here, which is who will Cordelia marry? What will become of, ki of Lear's kingdom? Attend the lords of France and Burgundy Gloucester. I shall, my liege. So Gloucester um, leaves as does Edmund. Um, we know that Edmund leaves because he comes in as the opening speaker of the next scene. So they were there in order to set up who Edmund was and now for Edmund to leave. Now, one thing that Tate does is he begins his version of Lear with Act 2, Scene 1. That is with, I mean, with Act 1, Scene 2, with the villain Edmund coming in and soliloquizing. I am a villain, thou nature, thou nature art my goddess, unto thee my services are due. That is, Tate makes King Lear start with a villain soliloquy so that we think, oh, that's a good villain. I'm really anxious to see how he gets his. Um, that's how Shakespeare started Richard III with a villain coming in who's the main character beginning, now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the son of York. Um, it's a good way to start a play. Shakespeare figured it out in his early 20s. Now he's gone way beyond that. But Tate goes back to that. So we should ask, why does Shakespeare have this original little scene? Um, and the answer is something like this, that this scene is the first parallel to this scene is the very next moment in this play, Lear and his daughters. That is what we have here. So now we'll do quickly a moment um, that is usually stressed while the opening of the play is usually quickly gone through. But what Lear does is he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to decide who Cordelia is going to marry. We're going to divide our kingdom. Um, and then suddenly he says, well, look at his speech. Meantime, we shall express our darker purpose. Give me the map there. Know that we have divided in three our kingdom, and tis our fast intent to shake all cares and business from our age, conferring them on younger strengths while we unburdened crawl toward death. 
Um, okay, so quick thing to notice here is Shakespeare has assigned himself a nearly impossible task, which is to write a tragedy about someone who says, I'm ready to die now, um, when tragedy ends with death, and this character is basically saying, I'm ready to die. Um, people in their lives think about, you know that, that bumper sticker, that t-shirt, whoever dies with the most toys wins? Um, people in their lives do kind of think about what does it count to um, succeed in life? What does it count to win in life? And the answer tends to be something like, um, if I'm very successful and have a good career and marry happily and have children that I love and do everything really well um, and um, live to a ripe old age and die, um, that's, that's what it means to win in the game of life. So it's really hard to see how Lear at this point can lose it's like he's on the one-inch line, um, and he's winning by 25 touchdowns. Um, all he's got to do is crawl over that line. Um, how could he possibly lose? That's the assignment that Shakespeare has given himself, turned this into a tragedy. He then intensifies the assignment by saying, you know that scene in tragedy, which is, where, um, which is the really huge reversal where everything goes bad for the main character and it turns into um, an irretrievable tragedy, that abdication scene that I'm not even allowed to put in Richard II anymore when Richard gives up the crown and confers it on younger strengths? You know what? I'm going to do that in Act 1, Scene 1 in before line 100. Um, so, the, so it's almost as though what Shakespeare is doing in King Lear is he's taking the, um, compressing the first four acts of a standard Shakespearean tragedy, compressing them into the first hundred lines, and then taking the very last movement of a Shakespearean tragedy, what happens after you've lost everything, and that which is usually a kind of resolution of the emotional experience in tragedy, Shakespearean and otherwise, here becomes what the entire play is about. Um, the entire thing turns out to be about that. It's, it's like those movies where, where a standard scene becomes the whole movie. Um, that's what Shakespeare is doing here. You know, think of a modern version of this as something like My Dinner with Andre where usually dinner scenes in movies last three or four minutes at most because they're so boring. Um, and here you have my dinner with Andre, which lasts an hour and a half, two people having dinner together. Shakespeare is doing that kind of experiment in King Lear. He's taking something that usually lasts about five or 10 minutes of stage time, and he's turning it into the entirety of the play. He's making the whole play into that. So everything else is compressed here. I'm about to die, I abdicate. Um, our son of Cornwall and you are no less loving son of Albany. So notice again, he's treating them equally. We have this hour a constant will to publish our daughter's several dowers. That future strife may be prevented now. Um, that doesn't work out for him so well. Um, and then we hear about France and Burgundy, great rivals in our youngest daughter's love. Long in our court have made their amorous sojourner, and here are to be answered. Now notice all the royal we's in what he's been saying. We, our, know that we have divided. Uh, shake all cares misses from our, our age, conferring on younger strings well. We, unburdened, crawl toward death, our son of Cornwall. And then he switches into the first person singular. Tell me, my daughters, 
and then back to the plural. Since now we will divest us both of rule, interests of territory, cares of state, which of you shall we say doth love us most that we our largest bounty may extend where nature doth with merit challenge Goneril, our eldest born, speak first. So that moment where he says, tell me, my daughters, not tell us, that's a moment of a quick switch into the personal, the I singular, not the I plural. The way Olivier does this, um, I think is really, really good, which is he has Lear become very sly here. Um, and Lear, he, his Lear is pretending that this idea has just occurred to him. Um, and what Olivier conveys, and I think this is absolutely right, is that Lear has been looking forward to this moment, looking forward to the moment when he's going to give these amazing presents to his daughters, but what he's going to get from them is fantastic gratitude and love. And so the way Olivier does it is he gets this little sly look on his face, and then he says, not quite convincingly, I have an idea. Tell me, my daughters, which of you shall we say doth love us most? Um, but what we see then is how important this moment is to him, this moment of gratitude. He really, really is looking forward to it. Now, what most people will say about King Lear is that Lear um, then stupidly and mistakenly believes what Goneril and Regan have to say to him. So they produce empty verbiage about how much they love him when they don't, and Lear thinks, oh, that's so nice that they love me so much, um, and gives them their third of the kingdom, and then he turns to Cordelia, mistakenly believing that Goneril and Regan really love him. That's completely wrong. Um, Lear knows that what he's going to get from them is empty verbiage. It doesn't matter to him. What matters to him is Cordelia. And what we can see in Lear, and this is why I wanted us to look at the opening moments, what we can see in Lear is a father who is trying to be loving to the children he actually doesn't love as much as his favorite. But he's trying. He's trying and he doesn't want them to know it. So instead of saying as what he's thinking is, oh, this is going to be so great because when Cordelia sees how much I give her, um, she'll be so grateful that it'll be wonderful. So what I could do is a contest where I say, Okay, Cordelia, I want to give you the best land because I love you best, but tell me how much you love me and how grateful you are. But then he thinks, no, that's bad parenting. They don't deserve for me to make it clear that I love Cordelia best. That's not fair to them. So I'll treat them even-handedly, and I'll make it a fair contest. But we know it's not fair because Goneril speaks, and Lear makes the most basic mistake, which is to say, yes, you tie for second place before either Regan or Cordelia get to compete. It's like, okay, you did pretty well on the slalom. You get the bronze medal. Now let's see, Regan, you get the silver medal. And now, Cordelia, do your gold medal run. He's giving out the medals before the competition is over. But he's trying. Um, okay, uh, do people want the quiz on Friday or do you want it till next Tuesday? Okay, it sounds like Tuesday. All right, um, be at least through the end of Act 4, though, for Friday. <laughs>